2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com
0: slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Hello and welcome to Political Football, the new podcast that digs into the global political stories behind the sport – I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman.
3: And I'm Stephen Bush, special correspondent at The New Statesman. This is a special series devoted to the 2018 World Cup, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be following all the action in Russia and analysing it with our guests.
2: And our first guest today is John Bew, Professor of History and Foreign Policy in the War Studies Department at King's London, and one of our favourite writers. And John's here to discuss the history of the World Cup, how globalisation has changed the World Cup, and anything else you want to talk about, John. Welcome. Welcome. Stephen, are you looking forward to the tournament? I think it begins on
3: Thursday this week. Yeah. So, much to my surprise, I'm usually I usually take a while to get into a World Cup because this is going to sound really silly, but I've never really enjoyed them until I get. A sense of what their narrative is, you know, like who the World Cup's villain is, who the teams you're rooting for are, how England are going to do if they're participating, and slightly to my surprise, this time I am I am actually quite excited about it, despite my kind of general cynicism about the World Cup as a, a tournament.
2: And John, what about the fact it's held in? Um... Putin's Russia.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a lot of World Cups have been political beforehand, and, and there's a lot of focus on this. To, 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 we're in this weird situation where our own Foreign Affairs Committee released a report last week warning about the problems that England fans traveling around following in may face in Russia. So there's, there's a shadow of hooliganism, which is kind of gives it a retro, unfortunate retro 70s, 80s feel. There's the ostracization of Russia. Um, there's no sort of big game on the horizon like Iran versus USA that you've had a, a previous World Cup. So the group stages don't throw up any of those sort of geopolitical clashes. Um, but that sort of mood music is in the background, and, and there's certain questions over, over you know, how the thing's going to play out. And then there's the sort of the doping thing, Russia's involvement in do- doping. Additionally, so it's not only Russia is a geopolitical uh, mischief maker. There's also Russia as the country with this odd relationship with sport. All that having been said, all that skepticism, I can't help but get excited a week before the World Cup, and I, it just all kind of falls out the window. And, I, and when people were suggesting perhaps that England should withdraw from the World Cup, I, I, you know, I'm a Northern Ireland fan, but I, even then, I was I was slightly panicky and thought, no, 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 please don't ruin our summer.
2: Yeah, this was in the aftermath of the Salisbury poisoning, and Stephen, I think that would have been a, a disastrous mistake by Theresa. May wouldn't it if she had pulled the England football team out of the World Cup while the rest of the rest of the world was there enjoying enjoying the opportunity to play football, even though they're playing football in Putin's Russia? I mean, surely that was the right decision to send the England team.
3: I actually crunched the numbers on this because obviously this argument of it handing him a propaganda victory, and you kind of ask yourself how much that really matters in a, a managed democracy. To Use the kind of Chatham definition of what uh, of how Russia's uh, politics work, and actually, when you look at the performance of incumbent governments after World Cups, there is no evidence that you know, they receive any kind of internal political boost. Um, and also, I, I would have I would have missed the opportunity to watch England go out limply at the quarterfinals. So,
2: <laughs> well, I think we are hold on our England predictions for now. But you, although you've given us an early indication as to what you're thinking. John, what are, you, you talk about the geopolitics of the World Cup. I mean, football has become one of the supreme instruments of soft power. For, for Putin, it's not about the football, you know, what happens on the pitch. What it is, is about having the whole jamboree take place on Russian soil. Similarly, for the Qataris, who will be hosting it in four years, it's, it's, it's a statement of intent, isn't it? It is. Um, that having been said,
1: I think past World Cups don't quite compare to Olympics. Olympics, Mm -hmm. uh, ironically, while they're supposed to be more international, actually, you know, host nations often have tried to own them as prestige thing. Also, Winter Olympics in in recent Russian case as well. Actually, it's hard to think of a previous World Cup in which someone's managed to sort of dominate the narrative. Um, And I don't know if that you know, it's because football has a kind of democratic quality to it or it's just so international, it can't be owned like that. But I'm actually struggling, to, I'm racking my brain thinking of a, of a really highly politicised World Cup.
2: Well, there was Argentina 78.
1: Yeah, well, which had a lot, you know, a lot of a political background and, and, and issues
2: to it. But was, was that quite owned in the same way? I Not mean, in it, the yeah, same yeah. way. And then I remember, I'm older than you two, I remember the World Cup in Germany in 74, West Germany, when Germany was um, divided, of course, and there was a famous encounter during that World Cup where West Germany played East Germany, East Germany had also qualified, and the East Germans beat the West Germans 1-0. And I remember as a very young boy watching that game on television, whether it it was a huge geopolitical moment, I don't think so. Aren't we witnessing an evolution of the World Cup to becoming something much closer to the Olympics?
3: The weird thing is, is that one of the reasons why Argentina 78 was dominant is Argentina were a much better team than this Russia side. So one of the slightly... Weird things about it is that, barring a miracle, Russia's participation in this World Cup, rather like South Africa's in 2010, is likely to be brief. The
1: only thing is, they've got quite an easy group. Yeah. Um, that's that's the, my only caveat. But I'm sorry,
3: I'll, I'll hand over. to Yeah, it's true. They, do, <laughs> they they do have quite an easy group, so it's a possible. But even so, you know, they're the weakest team according to FIFA rankings in the continent. But we do seem to be entering an era where, well, I guess we've seen it already in the club game. If we think about uh, the Premier League, where Two of the sort of most dominant clubs in the last decade are owned by uh, oligarchs of one shape or another. They have become rich man's playthings. So I guess the kind of use of it as reputation laundering is going to become more acute. Weirdly, I feel a lot more uncomfortable about the Qatar World Cup than this one. The treatment of workers in the construction of those facilities just makes it so hard and, for me, impossible to disentangle the tournament in Qatar from the awfulness of uh the regime there whereas i'm less bothered by um the russian world cup but that may of course just be me being wet,
1: I think that's a, a, a fair enough comment. Actually, I mean, also Russia is historically a big beast in football, I and mean, it's had a you know bad twenty years or so, but does have you know serious Champions League teams as well, and and, and sort of can make a decent play. The Qatari World Cup, and without getting into too much details on the sort of corruption charges, you can make a legitimate case for Russia as a World Cup, and, and also when they applied, the situation with Putin wasn't so fractious with the rest of the West. Also, you know, the World Cup is not the West preserve. Qatar is something a little bit more dodgy. It, and, and 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 you know even illogical given that you're going to have 42 degree um, heat in the midst of although well, they're the going to move
2: it to the autumn, aren't they? It's going to be in effect, it's going to be a win a winter World Cup. I think it's November or December. It's going to be hosted in Qatar when the temperatures will be what 21, 22. But, but what a disastrous thing to move our World Cup from the you yeah. know from the from the summer to the winter. But the whole the, point of it is to keep us alive and keep
1: us interested during the summer.
2: But this indeed, but this is the consequence of what 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 has happened to football and particularly the way that FIFA has run under the regime of. Blatter, who's as you know, is associated with any number of corruption charges at present.
1: Absolutely. I mean, actually, in that sense, you have to give the Premier League some credit as compared to a lot of other national leagues. There's things it does that are, that are, you know, flawed. And I think taking away from the the national game is one of them. And you can see a relatively weak, a pretty weak England team, partly because of that. That having been said, if you compare it to, for example, the Spanish li- uh, League, uh, you know, the, the, the spread of football money across the board, has created a kind of a, a, you know, in a sense that Manchester United and Liverpool, if they're in another national league, would take all the, you know, the, I'm sorry, Arsenal as well, I know I'm with two Arsenal fans, but the big clubs would take all the TV money. Premier League's actually handed, handed out things a little bit, you know, a little, a little bit more um, uh, generously across the park. So, you know, in that sense, you know, be thankful with our own institution. FIFA and UEFA has its difficulties as well. These, these, it, these supranational governing bodies have been hugely problematic for the direction of the game over the last 25 years.
2: Just on the Russia's group, I've just got my little um, guide here. One of the supplements that are falling out of the newspapers. The Russia, Russia's group, Group Eight: Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Uruguay. So an easy group. Who said it was an easy group?
1: I think it's a relatively easy Do group you? for a home nation. Yeah, I don't. I mean, Egypt, Egypt have the brilliant
2: Salah if he's fit. But is he is The Even more brilliant, El Neni, the Arsenal midfielder. Yeah,
3: of course. Well, obviously, yeah, with the with the great El Neni, you've yeah, that team's going to carry all before it. I mean, it feels to me that the kind of... I'm not going to pretend I have any inside track into what goes on in Egypt's training to, uh, squad, but this whole kind of background noise of, oh, you know, he, he'll probably be properly fit for the second game, He, but he won't be quite fit for the first game. I just... I can already feel that what will happen is Salah will play all three games and he clearly won't be fit for any of them. Uh and uh, it will be, I think, a slightly sad uh, subplot to the tournament as a whole. But equally, I still think Egypt are a better team, even without their star player, than Russia. Uruguay are obviously a better team than... I Russia. think Russia
2: are in trouble in yeah. this group, John. I mean, uh, Uruguay, I presume, Suarez is fit. I mean, he knocked England out last time round, four years ago, with a, with a playing, on, in effect, on one leg. I mean, he had a chronically injured knee, but he still managed to score two goals and knock England out. So I think Russia may be in trouble. The opening game is spectacularly uninteresting. It's Russia versus Saudi Arabia. and I don't think I'll be watching that one. You yeah,
1: well, if Russia, Russia should beat Saudi Arabia first game, three points, um, then what have they got to do? You know, a, a draw or a draw and a win of the, of the other two games. Um, I I think they've got a decent chance. Egypt also don't travel well. They also scrape through the last minute penalty by Mo Salah. They don't play with the same sort of fluency that that um, you know his goal his goal scoring record for Egypt. You know, understandably isn't, isn't isn't as effective. What he does Salah for the Egyptian national team is kind of bear the weight of emotional responsibility and that's the, the penalty scored in qualifying as of as most I I recommend anyone listening to this podcast to YouTube it has a kind of incredible outpouring of emotion. But beyond that, I, I think the Egyptian team are actually pretty pretty weak and a and a you know a home niche and psyched up home niche and should be able to, you know, at least get that draw, if not
0: win. Normalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb. dot com slash host.
2: Another thing that's slightly disappointed me about this World Cup, when you look at the timing of the games, they're at sort of one PM, four PM when we're at work, and then seven PM. I often like the rhythm of a World Cup, where particularly those Southern, South American World Cups, where you you watch watch a game about seven forty five. And then there's another game at ten forty-five in the evening. I, I I like I used to really like that. I was thinking particularly the year I took my A levels, which would have been when? Nineteen eighty-six. That was during the World Cup. And I used to, I very much enjoyed the late match at about ten forty-five. In the evening, having done a little bit of revision, reluctantly, and then gone downstairs and watched a match, the Mexico Mexico. World Cup. Mexico World Cup, where Gary Lineker was was leading the England attack. Are you Are you looking forward to the what I call the rhythm of a World Cup, Stephen? Live matches on BBC, ITV, the the chatter in the paper, the chat on podcasts, the emergence of possible players you don't know about.
3: Well, similarly, the um, I prefer one where it's on the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. That was the great thing about 2014. Not least actually the other fun thing about 2014 is uh, lots of European embassies were gearing up to do a charm offensive with kind of various pro-European journalists to try and keep us in the EU, which obviously didn't work quite so well from a soft power perspective. But it did mean that I got to see a lot of those games in, in the host country As it were. So I was in Germany when they put Seven past Brazil, and it was a wonderful party atmosphere. And it was. You were in the German embassy. In the German embassy when it happened. Yeah, so technically, from a legal perspective, if I had committed a crime in in that embassy, I would have been in Germany. (laughs) Um, But because it's at 1 and 4 pm, I feel I can't really say in this building, yes, I am planning to to (laughs) sack sack off work at crucial moments to to watch the 1 and 4 pm games. So it won't have quite the same rhythm. I am planning to watch the opening game because I always feel you've got to watch the opening game to kind of get into the, the rhythm of it. But I think also the other sad thing in terms of um, yeah, the stuff we've been talking about in terms of globalisation and its impact on the game, although I love the Champions League, it has, I think, uh, hurt the World Cup quite badly in two ways. The first is the, the excitement of World Cup's past, of teams coming from strange parts of the country, playing strange, strange parts of the world, playing strange formations. Um, everyone is basically going to play 4-2-3-1 or some variation on Juve's back three, as, as England are. So you don't have that kind of weird and wonderfulness. And it's not the pinnacle of, of the sport. The Champions League final, despite the goalkeeping not being the pinnacle of the sport by any stretch of the imagination, is the pinnacle of it as a kind of athletic and sporting excellence, which does take away from the, the joy of the World Cup. And I think will be even more of a problem in Qatar when it will be in that old slot than did so much harm to the African Cup of Nations.
2: Yeah, that is a that is a good point, John. I think, isn't it? The we're those of us who watch the Champions League, as uh, as we three do, we're so familiar with the players, and especially if you even watch the early group stages of the of the Champions League, when you maybe watch the lesser clubs who don't end up in the quarterfinals or the semifinals, but some of the Portuguese clubs, for example, or some of the Dutch clubs, you you become familiar with the emerging talent in the game, as well as of course the big stars. I guess the player last time round that surprised me—I didn't know a lot about—was James Rod- Rod- Rodriguez, a name I can't even pronounce now. Who I think was then was then play- Colombian player was then playing with he Monaco,
1: went to Monaco to Madrid and and now then Bayern. he ended
2: up at Madrid. He's now at Bayern. I thought he was sensationally good last time round. But what, are you are you concerned about that? There are players out there that yeah. might surprise you, or you, do you think you know? Everyone.
1: Uh No, I mean to Stephen's point, you're unlikely to get the sort of Cameroon or of, of, of Italia 1990 who came in yeah. and sort of just knocked everyone over. Yes. And, and of course, in that firm, famous first game against Argentina went, you know, went pretty far in terms of stretching England as well. I mean, really exciting all the way team. to the quarterfinals. All against England. the way to the quarterfinals. Yeah. yeah. So you know that 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 I think that's less likely that sort of you know clash of footballing styles. Um uh, you'd hope someone sort of would, you know, come from left field. That having been said, I mean, if you take the sort of last ten, fifteen years of Euros and World Cups, you do get surprise packages. You know, you get the Portugal's who, you know, mm. actually beyond Ronaldo and a few other players, are competent, technical, but not full of, you know. Well, they uh, kind of
2: bored their way to the Euro victory, didn't they? They were, I mean, they well, were. Well, so did they, Greece. So did so yeah, Greece. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and, and anybody who have a Brazil team actually playing pretty well and confident? It's sorted out. I think it's centre halves, which had had yes. that problem at the last World Cup. Um, Um, and actually do play with a sense of romance. French football team at the moment in terms of the the way they play, the attacking flair and pace is actually pretty exciting as well. So, so, I mean, you you know, oddly, some of these World Cups, some of them are viewed with nostalgia. People incredibly tell me, I was 10 years old during 1990 and I watched every single game um, but actually, people tell me now it was a really defensive World Cup. And then you had a player like Toto Scalacci, who came from absolutely nowhere. He was the last choice in the squad and through various injuries, suddenly had this wonderful World Cup. Again, the, the, Sicilian, the Sicilian player yeah, from yeah. And then went to Milan and um, you know had a couple of big transfers and barely did anything thereafter. So you, you do get the surprise package. James Rodriguez has not, not been fantastic since then. Uh, and you do get those sort of national teams. You see it at the South Americans in particular. I guess um,
2: also last time round, the, the Chile side... Exactly, I saw them. They came to Wembley just before the tournament in a friendly and completely destroyed England, playing an extraordinarily energetic, high pressing style of a kind that I hadn't really seen. And we we were we were you know, Alexis Sanchez, Arturo Vidal, that side. People were stunned by that Chile side, and they were brilliant for the first two games at the World Cup last time round and in the end went out, I think very unluckily to Brazil. But they they were a surprise package to me, Stephen. I don't know about you last time.
3: Yes, I suppose Chile were a surprise package in terms of their kind of quality. I guess in twenty ten, Germany being exciting and not dour was a surprise to a lot of people. But yeah, I just feel you don't get the kind of same sort of... And, you know, maybe we'll be looking back in three weeks' time and, you know, Nigeria will have found a way to make it click and we'll be going, oh, gosh, you know, don't I feel silly now? But it just feels like that kind of thing doesn't happen in the same way because the game is so much more globalised and, you know, kind of almost everyone plays uh, in the same way. Before we could talk
2: about World Cup's past, I think we should have a little nostalgia section before we finish this first podcast. Should we just briefly talk about England What do you think of the setup under Gareth Southgate, John?
1: Uh, I'm not so into the idea that Gareth Southgate suddenly is the thinking man's manager. Um, (laughs) We we do like to, in this country, sort of get excited about sort of narratives. The current narrative is that he's more philosophical and reflective um, and therefore... There's a story in the paper
2: today by someone who used to know him when he was young who said he he ought to go away and become a travel agent.
1: Okay, well, travel agent. The usual thing is a sort of the hint of one of these managers reading The Guardian suddenly becomes (laughs) immensely sophisticated. I remember that of Brian McClare many years ago when it was revealed he read The Guardian. And Graham Lassau Uh, too. Graham Lassau, another one. Um, So, Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, I think there's sort of a, a, a tendency to get carried away with the narrative, but well, he's slightly, I mean, he's fallen upon a formation and he's going to run with the formation, so I give him kudos for that. But, I mean, Roy Hodgson... For, but isn't it uh, the
2: formation that Aston Villa played... What in the late eighties, early
1: nineties? It's a it's a it's a it's a, trans, it's a busy re-up version of Terry Terry Venable's Christmas Tree Formation yes. from um um from Euro '96. Yes. Is an element of that. Um, but you know he's he's sort of running with it. But I mean there was no, there was no master plan. He found he found the, the, the solution or his solution sort of halfway through. Um, qualifying And even now there are unresolved questions over whether you play someone along with Henderson or you can have uh, Dele Ali and Lingard on the pitch. So, um, you know, I, I'm not convinced that there's some sort of hidden genius or, you know, unhatched talent behind it all. That having been said, every time, every World Cup, the law of averages, if you think about it, England does have good quality players who in other national teams would be pretty effective and, you know, probably the best, most on-form striker in Harry Kane, real talent off the bench like Ashford, Sterling. You can't argue with the scoring record this season. I like think Jamie Vardy's dangerous. I think England's got a weak goalkeeper, but but also think it's not inconceivable. It can, you know, the English team can do you know can do very well this year just by law of averages and, and, and by one Probably other. Thing, very well,
2: is it Steven's last eight?
1: Um, I I think if you get to the last eight, then suddenly it's all open. There's no there's, there's no reason why England can't beat a Spain. I haven't um, studied my
2: on route to the final, and I, and I promise listeners I will do for next week. When I had an early look at this some weeks ago, it looked to me as if England may play either Brazil or Germany in the quarter final, if all goes well.
3: Yeah, but I think at the point you get to the quarter finals, right, they're all all difficult games. I agree that it feels that Southgate has found a system that fits the players he has semi by accident, but at least he does have a system that does seem to fit the players he has. You don't feel that this is an England side which just cannot score more than one goal a game to save its life. And they do have they don't have the softest route to the, to the semis. I think it's Argentina of, of all of the group, the teams who have got a really quite la- easy route to to the, last, uh, to the final four. But they do have had quite a good route to the, the last eight. Uh, there are lots of good attacking players uh, coming off the bench. Belgium look quite strong. I can't... It feels something unlikely that this England team can be the best of the best. Belgium but-
2: underperformed, though, don't they? The Euros, they, they were knocked out by the Welsh heroically by the Welsh, well, they reached the semi-final. So Belgium do seem to have a problem at underperforming. Is it, is it also to do with the politics of Belgium, being that this is called political football, the idea that Belgium itself is a kind of pseudo-state, John?
1: Uh, I actually don't think the politics. I mean, actually, you can say that of other teams. Used to be said of that,
2: Spain that it wasn't a homogenous yeah, nation. Yeah, or, or,
1: or the the, but, but the cliques in the Dutch national team. Sometimes yes. they had sort of you know racial associations too. Yes. I, I mean, the Belgians' problems, I think, are footballing related. Belgium has lots of problems as a state, but I mean, the issues now are, are, are to do with managers and manage football. So this week, he wants to play uh, Martinez, the, the Belgian manager, wants yes. to play De um, Bruyne quite deep. So we can allow these other players in position. Is or this he fell the, up for, with Nangalan, the former manager
2: of Everton, Former can... manager
1: of Everton, who, who a lot of the, the players don't quite respect, yes. and, and uh, Lukaku's had a brush with yes. Nangalan, and a really effective, wonderful Roma midfielder is not in the squad They've as well. Out, yeah. um, so I, I think I think these these are footballing problems. Last time they played Hazard in the centre of midfield and they couldn't get the most out of him. I mean, um, they're more effective in sort of in, in qualifying, and then they then they well, actually they were very good in qualifying last time as well. So you know, I don't think those are those are the sort of footballing um, issues. You do get them. In in, in, in football teams as well just back in England one point I think which is different than than uh, previous years, they look, they look less less exhausted going into uh, World Cup. You, you remember those World Cups are sort of skulls, Lampard and 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 Gerrard always looking quite tired after a Champions League semi final. Is that because or some of the players
2: haven't been playing twice a week? Well, I mean the, Henderson's, the whole been playing,
1: Henderson's been playing. Henderson's playing a lot, and a, and a lot depends on his energy. But yeah, Rashford is sort of raring to go. Kane Ling- the, Lingard's the, been the in, and li- out. Uh, in and out of the team. They're not sort of burned out. Um, Harry Kane, Kane was had, injured. It was wasn't injured, it? which sometimes can be a blessing in disguise. Um, but seems to have you know come back relatively sharply. And is due an effective World Cup, isn't that effective in the sort of national tournaments so far? Um so that's sort of and also you do have energy at fullback, full and and you know that's a crucial part of the thing, up and down the pitch, and that you know he's he's put you know middle of room in his squad for pace. and yeah, I, I like Carl so.
2: Walker a lot. I think he's a he's a phenomenal athlete, and he's he's learned a lot playing under Pepper City. And I know Southgate looks like he's gonna play him at on the right of a back three, in other words, as a, as a roving centre-back bombing down the right flank but with a right fullback advance to his right, as it were. I think, he's a, I think he's a phenomenal athlete. But, Stephen, what do you make of Southgate? Rather polite young man, well-spoken, has a neat little beard at the moment. People, people have often said he's a lightweight and he's weak, but he came out of that incredibly tough Crystal Palace dressing room Ian Wright, Mark Bright, you know, very dynamic palace team from the late 80s, early 90s. So he's no he's no fool or no stooge. And I think Ian Wright, you know, it's he's, he's tough to earn the respect of Ian Wright. Wrighty respects him. So what do you think of Southgate?
3: I admire him for, you yeah, know, kind of rehabilitating himself after... Being relegated with Middlesbrough. He's talked a lot about how he's talked a lot about that summer where he had to go around the club firing people because they went down and how it it shaped him. I like that he's um, uh, been very protective of Raheem Sterling while the tabloids have been doing this kind of sort of typical thing of finding a scapegoat in the England uh, squad to attack. And I do think, although I have my doubts about how he arrived at that system, right? The, the back three is a good system for England and I think it's positive that he's come up through this system than Dan Ashworth and everyone else at the FA seems to have invested a lot of faith in of having the youth team the under 21 and the men seem play a similar system so you have kind of a a philosophy and not just a kind of like let's try and bung all of our best players into whatever the fashionable formation of the week is, which does seem to be a little bit Belgium's problem, right? It doesn't make any sense to me why they're playing that back three other than Juventus and uh, City have had quite a bit of success with back threes recently.
1: Well, England has the advantage of it has less superstars to squeeze into a team. Yeah. Um I worry about that English back three. I mean, I like the system. I think Cal Walker has got recovery, um, but you can cover him at cover him at right back, and it's different playing for Pep City when you have ninety percent of the ball um, than it is than it is for England. And often they. Struggled to keep the ball. And I think in some games they will struggle to keep the ball. I think Walker is very poor at playing offside. I like Harry Maguire a lot. He's probably going to play him
2: as well. He's sort of physical. The, the but Leicester they, City stopper, although yeah. he, as I understand it, he played every single game for Leicester last season, and they certainly leaked a lot of goals. They leaked a lot of goals. I mean, he was um, you know
1: playing alongside a, a, a defense that should have been updated three years ago yes. um, or two years ago when they won the what about Premier John League. John Stones, he
2: seems to make. He's not he, going to be in the team. I don't think. You don't um, I think he might start? He's very good on the ball, but he. We'll see if he's in the team or not, but he makes a lot of mistakes, doesn't he? I think he's like to play
1: Cahill, McGuire, and Walker as okay. three. three. Um, but, um, I mean, who knows? And he on the left, he will be on the left.
2: He um, can play Trippier, I think.
1: Trippier no, uh, is on sorry, the So Trippier is right. on the right. On the left will be.
2: Um, Surely it's not Ashley Young, is it? It will be Ashley Young, I think, at the moment. Yeah. You're a Manchester United fan, but. From what I've watched of Ashley Young over the years, when he was at Villa and then since he's been at United, he just always comes back onto his right foot. He does, but this is this this is the issue with the left with the left wing back. But actually, he
1: puts in a lot of crosses. He's got very good assist red at United this year. Um, so you don't think it's Danny Rose, the Spurs left hasn't back? Hasn't played enough this season, has no? He? Yeah.
3: No, I think it will be Young as first choice because he has, has played more. And I think also, the, one of the slight weirdnesses of international football is it's slightly more acceptable to have teams that are weirdly lopsided because you do have lots of teams which are fairly weak down the left. Obviously, Sterling gives you an outlet up front. But I assume that if you kind of imagine uh, you know, the kind of heat map, I assume England's heat map will be weirdly lopsided to the right side just because so many of our best players are right-sided at the moment. And so you kind of just have to kind of make the best of it.
2: And we, we don't have many top-class English players, unfortunately. I mean, the globalisation of the English league means it's very difficult for English players to get into the, the very best sides. But you wonder, who's missing? I would like to have seen Oxlade-Chamberlain there, but of course he's injured. He was beginning to look like a very good player under Klopp. Jack Wilshere wasn't selected. Some say England's potentially their best ball-playing midfielder. I'm not so sure nowadays. I mean, he looks to me, the injuries have taken a heavy toll. But Stephen, is there anyone you you feel we're missing who could have who could have been at the World Cup who's not? Um,
3: I think in terms of that, system actually I do think although I don't think Wilshere should start and I agree that he doesn't look like the player he was the question I have about this England side is if it's minute 70 and they're down to 10 or they just want to hold on to the ball or, or or defend weirdly it's not an England team that you can really imagine outscoring a lot of teams but I find it hard to work out how it's going to avoid conceding late on and the advantage of Wilshire, and it's sad to say say this because this is not what I would hope I'd be saying about him at 26, is he is someone who can at least bring a measure of Ball retention to a side, which is something, I think this England team is going to struggle to do.
1: I think that's the kind of unanswered question is whether he plays someone alongside Henderson, who he puts Dyer in there, or or, or someone else. And um, the last game, when everyone was sort of talking confidently about, it, they played they played um, um, Lingard and Ali sort of going for it's quite an attacking formation. I think England will concede goals. I think the goalkeeper situation is not a, a there's not. I mean, getting rid of Joe Hart has been a sensible, a sensible. Um, thing to do because he's been disastrous in the last few tournaments. That having been said, you know, that that uh, those coming in are not effective. I think he'll pick Pickford because he's uh, better with his feet. As far as I can see, the last 10 games of the season, balls are just flying past Pickford, and he did this. Um, uh, Paul Robinson thing of di- diving after the ball has gone in the goal. Um, I, I think that is a weakness for England. And, and I mean, that having been said, in World Cups you do get these you know teams doing incredibly well with lunatic goalkeepers, who so try yes. ready Higita types, or uh, <laughs> you try to try and play the ball in the halfway line. So you know, but but I, so I you think don't that's think Pickford will do a
2: scorpion at some point?
1: Uh, possibly, scorpion kick. possibly. I mean, that that would make the World Cup for me.
2: Um, I think this is a this is a solid England sign, Not not inspiring. I think Harry Kane's potentially. A great striker. Whether he will deliver at the tournament remains to be seen. Um, you know, I'm quite excited to see them. What I understand from sports writers who've been hanging around the camp is that they're a decent bunch. They're, they've been open. They're, they haven't got some of the swagger of the players of the past, despite their astounding wealth and comfort. And do you like? Do you like this group? Do you think they're a decent group of guys? Do you-
3: they do seem quite likable. I mean, it's the kind of sadness of say Welbeck for example is that I don't think he is quite ever going to make it as a top top player but he just seems like a really nice bloke and then obviously ones who clearly are top players like Raheem Sterling there was a wonderful thread being shared by one of the Manchester Evening News stories about how you know when he first met at City he was the only footballer he'd ever seen who cleared helped the PR clear the chairs away afterwards I think Raheem Sterling seems like a a really decent guy who's dealt with a lot of extracurricular nonsense from some bits of the press. Uh, And it just seems, on the whole, quite a likeable team. I mean, it's quite nice knowing that there won't be an England team with John Terry in it, which always kind of did slightly spoil the experience of watching England.
1: Yeah, I think there's less less of a hierarchy in this England team. I mean, beforehand you did have this sort of wannabe or self-regarding Galacticos, even if they seemed okay, like Gerrard, and you know, like Frank Lampard's turned into a decent fellow after after a sort of. Early and there was career, always right? an obsession it's with curious. one
2: player: Beckham, you know, Gaza in the past, Paul Gascoigne, then Beckham, the whole the whole celebrity cult around Beckham, which I find deeply tedious, and then Ro- Rooney more recently, and Harry Kane, who's you would say is perhaps the main man. Um, because of his goal scoring record for spurs and also he's the captain seems like a very kind of modest modest young man indeed rather, rather humble and thoroughly decent yeah i there think there may that's be a big right. exposé on him coming in a few few yeah. days which i don't know about and like this may be completely absurd but as as things stand he seems to be a decent young man i think that's the, the kiss of death so something might happen <laughs> i mean
1: the problem the, the, there's, there's an additional challenge which he's got the captaincy you on know, as well which which is a sort of additional burden um and there's a weird thing that England players do, sort of following the, the Terry Butcher folklore of getting overhyped for games. You'd see it with Joe Hart in the tunnel beforehand. And I hope this England team doesn't sort of fall into that trap. Because that's why they collapsed against Iceland last time. It's you know, overhyped. And it's not that they're not committed or, or, or psyched up, which is the kind of national criticism. You don't, guys don't care enough. Is It's that it the, you know, they, they forget to do the things to win. Um, and I think that, that's my concern about this England team.
2: OK, well, when we reconvene for the second podcast, England would have played their first game. So we'll talk a little bit more about England. But before we go on this first podcast, we'll have a very brief nostalgia section, I think. World Cup's past. Stephen, do you have a particular favourite?
3: Yeah, so I think my favourite World Cup, and this is where I'm going to annoy everyone else, I guess, by showing my... Actually, I think it's probably 98. It was just after uh, Wenger had arrived and we'd won that double for the first time. It had a number of exciting... French players in it looking back of course I realise that there's the slight taintedness and and this is what I'm going to air my kind of first conspiracy theory of of this podcast which is that I am certain the French government poisoned Ronaldo right you think about they had the motive we know they've done dodgy things to the global south before and it makes sense that would explain why he played so badly but other than that those rumours
2: persist as well that he was he was poisoned before the final
3: yeah 98 was other than you know the bit where the deep state interfered to make Brazil lose it was a great World Cup. I loved watching it. It's my memory of the first bet I ever wore, uh, won on foot, uh, did won football. Did you back France to win? I backed France to win Won't from the beginning of the tournament because they had a lot of Arsenal players. They yeah, did, yeah, so Petit and Vieira and others. Vieira yeah. And this young winger from Juventus called Thierry Henry. So I was very excited by by them as a, an idea. Except, okay, Henry hadn't joined yet, of course, but um, yes, yeah, so I was very excited by France and I thought they would win because they had some Arsenal players in them, and they did. That's I think the last World Cup where I've correctly. It
2: was also, blue. in that sense, it was, a, it was a memorable World Cup, not least for the French victory, but, but also because the French side seemed to represent all facets of France. There were French Africans, French Caribbeans, French Arabs, famously with Zidane at the center of the team. There was a Breton, Givache. There was a Basque is Azarou in that team. It was an extraordinary reflection of France as a, as a nation and, a, and the French people. Is that, is that fair to say, John?
1: Yeah, I think it did have that sort of feel to it, the, the sort of South Africa World Cup feel. I mean, not quite the sort of same healing uh, um, occasion, but actually it did have that. And, and people made sort of quite a lot of it politically at the time. They did, yeah. Um, because France sense.
2: is often, particularly with the Bonneur and some of the events we've seen subsequently. And I, mean,
1: the, I mean, that's the thing. What i also thought is, is subsequently that it didn't set France in no, any healthier it course. Didn't. But But at the time,
2: there was this great um, flourishing, particularly around the figure of Zidane, the French-Algerian, because of the traumas of the Algerian Civil War. And here was was someone leading from the front who was proudly a French-Algerian. And that was a moment of great national celebration. Obviously, what one now sees are fractures in the French in the French state.
1: Yeah, but but actually a wonderful football team um, that, that sort of, you know, has that precedent a bit to build upon. Um, so, I mean I, I mean, I actually fancy the French. It's not a, this it's a original around. thing to say. What about well. your...
2: Well, St- Stephen mentioned France 98 as a tournament he he, he particularly enjoyed. What about you? So this is all probably related
1: to age, I'm sure. But yeah. this um, uh, Italian 1990 had Pavarotti doing the theme tune. It had um, Scott Galaxy bursting onto the scene. It had a wonderful Brazilian side. I remember had 24 shots on target um, against um, Argentina, who had one. but stole it in the last minute. Um, Had players like Canidia... Baggio, with his socks pulled down before you UEFA told you... FIFA said you had to have shin guards. Um, you know, it had an awful, ugly final with spitting uh, and everything like that. But it, but it was, a, you know, a, a, a really boring final. But actually, I thought that tournament was... It also know, had the, an
2: epic semi-final, England-Germany. Yeah. Um, an England side that improved as the tournament went on. Bobby Robson, the coach, stumbled upon a new system playing Mark Wright as sweeper, do you yeah. remember? And, you know, Gary Lineker was scoring goals... David Platt was scoring goals, and it was quite an exciting England team that was getting better. They were lucky against Cameroon in the quarterfinal when they won three two.
1: Des Walker, Des Walker's wonderful pace player. at the back. Yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul yeah. Parker had yeah. a very
2: good tournament at the back, and then this epic semi final against Germany, Italia ninety. I mean, an epic, Stephen. That um, even today I'm pained to think about it because we lost in a in a. Penalty shootout very traumatically, and we would have been up against a very poor Argentina side in the final, and I think we would have beaten them. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's the definitional. You know, that's that's the the DNA of of modern British football's Italian Italia '90, right? Where where you know England play heroically. There's a player like Gaza who bursts onto the scene. Um, there are the, the one difference is no Rolls Royce defenders, but there were Rolls Royce defenders. Heroic goalkeeping. You know, an a, a exciting team, and it hasn't sort of been like that. Well, since. some people say it
2: was a very poor poor tournament overall.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I still I don't can't remember quite believe it being um, yeah. No, no, but that, that was the sort of line. It was very defensive. Obviously, the Italian team scored, the Scotch who scored these wonderful goals from 30 yards, but actually, it wasn't that fluent or fluid a team. Brazil were the most exciting team We were kind of had it, had it robbed. I remember crying when Brazil were beaten by Argentina, um, but that says it gives you investment. Also, Cameroon were wonderful and exciting. Wonderful um, uh, and, and, you know, led, and
2: Led by Roger Miller, Stephen. Are you aware yeah. of Roger Miller, this kind of veteran striker? Yeah, 42 well, 40, or something. 40, well, say he was 42, <laughs> 38, 42, whatever he was. he was. He was older than your average footballer and had a, had a tremendous tournament and used to celebrate with this little dance around one of the flagpoles. They were, they were a terrific side and very unlucky to go out to England in, in the quarterfinals. And we're still, Stephen, awaiting our first winner from Africa. Pele used to predict there would be an African winner, didn't he, by the turn of the 21st century? Well, that that hasn't happened I can't see a, an African team winning this tournament in 2018. Can you?
3: No, I mean it depends. You can. So Nigeria, as is typical for the Super, go into the tournament in with some slightly difficult internal stuff going on. Uh, they have a new-ish coach. They do, I think, have the players to do it. Other than in, in goal, one of the slight mysteries of African football, isn't it? Has never produced a, a top-class goalkeeper. There's a thing I always notice. Uh, watching watching Nafcon is su- the surprisingly poor quality of, of of goalkeeping, but I do think Nigeria could, if they click, do it. Of course, I mean that is the the curse of Jose Mourinho is destroying one of the most exciting creative uh, African players in John Obi Michael to turn him into a kind of bog average uh, holding player has really hurt the Nigerian national side. It's odd. So I uh, obviously have no direct memories of uh, of Italian nineteen. Uh, being you know very 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 newborn at that point. But the <laughs> weird thing about looking at the lineup for it and indeed um Euro ninety six which I do remember is the thing about those successful England teams is they had players who played for teams outside of England. You had Lineker who of course had were had you know left England. You had Platt who'd been at Lazio you had you had yeah you know, I think there's something interesting as and we, we talk about the global life game
2: Platt actually went after the yeah. tournament he was he in 90 he was at Villa yeah and then he went to Bari yeah, yeah. And then to Juventus with Gaza Walker. Yeah, but you're after. right. There was yeah. there was a generation of players, particularly because of Italia '90 and how well they performed. Then went to Italy, which was then the dominant the dominant league. Walker went to Sampdoria. That's right. And yeah. actually was destroyed as a player, I think, as a consequence. Yeah. Platt was very successful in Italy, particularly he got a transfer to Juventus, and then he he also went to Sampdoria, I think, when Sven-Göran Eriksson was the coach there. And now is your concern that England players are just stuck in England?
3: Yeah, I think, yeah, kind of in terms of we talked about Jack Wilshere in part one, right? But um, one of Jack's sort of problems, right, he was offered the chance to go on loan to Bournemouth and then loan to Milan, and he went to Bournemouth. And I kind of think he might be a better player if he'd gone to Milan. And there's a weird Brexit parallel, right? Then in the 80s, you had Alf Wiedersen, people using their free movement rights to leave the United Kingdom. And in 2016, you have... The United Kingdom deciding, okay, I'll be by a very narrow minority free movement was a problem that needed to be managed away with all of the negative consequences that has for our economy and our productivity. And I do think the failure, not just of England players, but England managers, right? You know, Brian Robson had been, had already been at Barcelona right by Italy, Italian, 1990? Bobby Robson. Bobby Robson, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Um I think he went not long after, After. but he had had been managing the continent. He he
2: went to the Netherlands, then Portugal, and then ultimately to Barcelona. But we're going to need to check our facts on Bobby Robson and report back to our listeners next week on exactly the trajectory of his career. The other key moment, I think, politically for Italia 90 was that England clubs, English clubs, were banned from playing in European competitions at that point because of the Heisel Stadium disaster in 1985. And the year earlier in 1989, you'd had the, the Hillsborough Stadium disaster in which, um, was it, 92 Liverpool fans died. I mean, traumatic and horrific event. So Italia 90 lifted the cloud, this sense of despondency around English football, after which English clubs were readmitted into European competition. So it was a great moment of change for football. And the, the image of Paul Gascoigne weeping openly on the pitch during the semi-final against Germany was an enduring image, John, of that period, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, I just I wanted a whole podcast on Gaza stories on the basis of this. So some great stories after he signed for Lazio, but that's perhaps that's that's, that's the next, next time. Yeah, I mean, that that was a significant moment. You're right. There was a kind of a, a Hooligan-centric cloud over English football. It's also the prelude to the sort of excitement around the Premier League. And I remember what you know, what, what happened with Euro ninety six thereafter, and a lot of um, particularly Manchester United fans that, you know, thought there's a lot of Johnny come lately, sort of in a, a football became too middle class, too Respectable thereafter, so it had it had both that opening up to the world again, but also that kind of more authentic um, side to it. You know, it wasn't fashionable to wear your England shirt and be you know down the pub supporting the England team because people thought you might hit them in the head with a pine glass. Um, That's right. No, so, so it, it's
2: clearly it, a kind of hinge moment, a hinge tournament because it was the end of the old football and the beginning of the new football, and the Premier League was two years away, and the whole globalisation of the game. And dare I say it, as it's the new statesman, the embourgeoisment of the game. On that rather pompous note, I think we should close the first podcast. As your guest, John, can I ask you for a prediction for this tournament
1: 2018? Uh, Yeah, okay. Well, I was going to go to the bookies and put some money on England just because I think (sighs) the law of averages suggests they might do quite well. But if you had to push me, I think... France will do very well, even though I think Laurent Koscielny is—is is he injured? He's injured too. Yeah. Um, I—I I don't think that they're going to miss Laurent Koscielny. I actually think he's a huge weak point. Um, so they've got a very good goalkeeper. They've got decent defense, and they will score against anyone. Um, a lot of it depends on whether Pogba. I uh, to put the right so boots you're, on. So
2: you're going for France?
1: I'm going for France. But you're going to put some money on England? Just to make life more
2: interesting. Stephen, I'm going to ask you next week, I think, because you'll be back. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Political Football, the New Statesman's new World Cup podcast. Thanks for listening to Political Football. We'll be back next week with another episode.
3: In the meantime, you can send us your questions and comments for future episodes via Twitter. I'm on at StephenKB and Jason is at Jason Cowley NS.